What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. In May 1990, a convicted killer was released from a prison in Austria, having served just under 14 years behind bars. His name was Jack Unterweger. A brutal killer who is now going to embark on what I think is one of the most horrifying killing sprees in modern European history. A master manipulator, Unterweger was living the double life of a celebrated writer and that of a serial killer. And now that he was free, he was ready to strike again. Once released from prison, he went on to kill nine women and was suspected of two others in just over a year. He possessed what one calls the charm of a psychopath. The style was completely different. It was absolute brutality and bursts of violence. His victims all died the same way, each strangled using the same specific knot. You are face to face with them. You are seeing the life drain out of them. You can choose to stop. You can choose to carry on. In public, he was the poster boy of prison reform in Austria, who had transformed from murderer to model citizen. But little did his supporters know that Jack Unterweger was leading a double life. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Jack Unterweger. In June 1976, 25-year-old Jack Unterweger was found guilty by a court in Salzburg, Austria, of the brutal murder of a young German woman. Unterweger confessed and was sentenced to life. However, Unterweger only served just under 14 years. He was released in May 1990, and only a few months later, prostitutes started to disappear. For the next 10 months, Unterweger went on a killing spree across Austria, the former Czechoslovakia, and even the United States. Unterweger was suspected of murdering 11 women, but was convicted of nine. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley explains why the reformed Unterweger wasn't really reformed at all. I'm absolutely astounded at the fact that Unterweger was released from prison many, many years before he should have been. People like Unterweger can change. They can change in prison if they acknowledge that what they've done is wrong and if they undertake work to address those traits and those behaviours that lead them to the decision to harm others. But he didn't go through that process at all. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel can't think of many others who would be comparable to such a person. He was, without question, perverted, depraved killing machine. And I can think of very few probably less than 20, who would deserve comparison with him. It is an extraordinary story, and one which sends a shiver down my spine every time I tell it. In 1975, during the trial of his first murder, Unterweger was assessed by a psychiatrist. He was diagnosed as an extremely dangerous, unpredictable, and incurable individual. The report stated he demonstrated egocentricity, 
aggressiveness, and sexual perversion with a sadistic component. Psychopaths are people who feel and behave and relate to others in ways that are different from the rest of us. The way that I often describe psychopathy is it's a form of emotional emptiness. So there aren't that complex range of emotions that the rest of us have, like love and guilt and regret. It is quite black and white for psychopaths. I want this particular thing, and I'm going to not stop until I've got it. Dr. Reinhard Heller is a leading psychiatrist in Austria who worked on the case. After studying the first murder, it was clear to him that Unterweger was a very dangerous man and an unhinged killer. This was a highly sadistic murder in which he abducted this girl who was walking home on an extremely cold winter's night. He drove her naked through the forest with a steel rod in his hand, taking great delight in her impending death from exposure, but ultimately strangled her with her bra. It was an incredibly vicious and incredibly sadistic moment. The atypical story of this sadistic killer begins just over 70 years ago. Johann Jack Unterweger was born on August 16, 1950, in Judenberg, Styria, in southern Austria. He was the illegitimate son of a waitress and an American soldier who left before Jack was born. His mother would occasionally spend short periods in jail. When Jack was two years old, he was placed into the care of his grandfather. According to Unterweger, his childhood was far from ideal. Jack Unterweger clearly had issues. He grew up without a father. His mother over the years developed a serious alcohol problem. Due to this, little Jack grew up in a hut in Carinthia with his grandfather. He was exposed to many things a child should not see. He's also learning things about women from his grandfather, who was a notorious philanderer. He's learning that women are there to be used and abused and discarded. So that's something that's ingrained in him from quite an early age. He also saw his grandfather bringing his lovers, or rather prostitutes, to this hut again and again, and the four-year-old boy witnessed their sexual activities and much more. And so there was this negative impact on his early years. In 1958, Unterweger left his grandfather's home and stayed with some relatives. Shortly after, he was placed in the foster care system. He didn't form those attachments with his caregivers, those consistent attachments that provide that secure environment in which children can grow up and feel safe and develop. A child in this kind of situation, they become very, very focused on their own survival. He almost inevitably fell into this criminal role and showed this type of behaviour from a very early age. He failed in his compulsory education and he displayed delinquent behavior in his youth. In December 1974, now age 24, Unterweger's desires took a deadly turn. He was traveling with his girlfriend through Germany when they drove past a friend of hers, 18-year-old Margaret Schaefer. They stopped and robbed her, but it didn't stop there. Unterweger took Margaret Schaefer to a nearby forest and ordered her to undress. He then tied her up, beat her with a steel rod, and finally strangled her with her own bra. 
So he sees an opportunity here, this woman walking who his girlfriend knows. There's an opportunity there for, for him to have control over somebody, to manipulate them and to do what he wants with them. The police questioned Unterweger's girlfriend and she confessed that he had killed her friend. Once in police custody, Unterweger also confessed to the murder, claiming he had a fit of rage. On June 1st, 1976, before his 26th birthday, Unterweger began a life sentence for the murder. But this was only the beginning of his story. From being what could only be described as a low-life, uneducated brute capable of killing an 18-year-old, he suddenly becomes a changed man. He teaches himself to read and write properly, and he begins a very adventurous career as a writer. In fact, writes not one but two bestsellers. He is very much the model prisoner. Now that he could read and write, Unterweger spent time in the prison library. He was uneducated, but with a large appetite for knowledge. One day in the library, he came across a book by an author completely unknown to him, and he says to himself, quite narcissistically, what he can do, I can do too. And then he began to write stories and, paradoxically, he wrote, among other things, these episodes for a radio program which was very popular among children and families back then. It was called The Bedtime Program for Little Ones, The Little Sandman is Coming. This was such a very idyllic, lovely, comforting, soporific program, which I also listened to as a child. Unterweger became famous as the man who wrote children's stories, poetry, and prose about life in prison. His autobiography, Figafoya, meaning purgatory, became a bestseller and was even adapted into a film. Journalist Paul Ivan and Dr. Haller delve into why the public was so ready to flock to someone like Unterweger. Unterweger suddenly attracted the attention of the media. People showed support for his release. These were people, some of whom were very well known, like journalists and artists, who showed their support for good reasons. Let's say they had good intention. The intellectuals said, wonderful, finally we have a criminal who reformed himself, who, as it were, confessed to his actions through his writing and processed them therapeutically. Such a person can only be a good person. And they fell for him. They really fell for him. At the time, Austria was in the midst of reforming its prison system. Jack Unterweger's newly found literary prowess was just what the reformers needed to prove the new system could be successful. And the calls for Unterweger's early release flooded in. Scholars, artists, writers, journalists, and even politicians campaigned for Unterweger to be freed. Now there was unbelievable pressure for his release at all costs. And that's what finally happened. However, there were voices who warned that hiding behind this charming and manipulative man is a very dangerous, malicious narcissist. Despite these warnings, on May 23, 1990, 39-year-old Jack Unterweger was released from Stein Prison in Lower Austria. He'd served just shy of 14 years of his life sentence. 
He was actually released without any safeguards. That means he did not even have to go to see his probation officer or to a psychiatrist where he would have been treated further. He was completely free. A brutal killer who is now going to embark on what I think is one of the most horrifying killing sprees in modern European history. Unterweger was given a second chance as a free man thanks to the Austrian artistic community's campaign for his release. Unterweger moved to Vienna where he mingled with the rich and famous. He played the role of the model rehabilitated prisoner. Unterweger had them all fooled. Author and former criminal psychologist Chris Carter figures that the prison reformers were more willing to believe their system had worked and turn a blind eye to Unterweger then acknowledge that maybe the system wasn't perfect. Obviously, the people who ran the prison wanted to advocate in their favor because it's a great advertisement. They say, see, the system works. We can put somebody who is as bad and as evil as a psychopath who kills somebody in cold blood. And this psychopath has rehabilitated in 15 years. He is now a writer, a person who is known by the people in Austria. So he was the success story of the criminal justice system. And I think we got too carried away with that and lost sight of the fact that this was an individual who had harmed someone else, who had taken someone else's life, and that wasn't something that had been addressed, so of course he was going to do it again. Unterweger was released from prison without the need to regularly speak to a psychiatrist. There was no real supervision, and he was able to live the life of a free man. He was very charming, quite intelligent, but also a highly manipulative person who was not mentally ill, but had an abnormal personality. He moves to Vienna, becomes the darling of cafe society, buys a white Ford Mustang. This is a man with some considerable uh, vanity and turns himself into a uh, famous guest, part-time journalist, uh, writer, television studios, radio talks, reads his poetry to adoring crowds, many of them women, and generally struts his stuff. Unterweger became a celebrity and often appeared on television news programs. In 1990, he joined a panel with journalist Paul Ivan to discuss prison reform. He was invited as basically an expert to report on his experiences in the penitentiary. He happened to sit next to me in this club. He appeared in a white suit. As far as I can remember, he had a bright red carnation, I think, in the buttonhole. The normal reaction of a journalist is curiosity and interest. What kind of guy, what kind of person is he? very easy for Unterweger to lead a double life because he can very effectively compartmentalise parts of his life and his existence. He's a very accomplished actor at this point. He's playing this role of the reformed criminal, of the man who's changed, and he's absolutely loving the spotlight that comes along with it. So he wants that, that narcissistic element of him wants that continued attention and this adoration. Unterweger also continued to write and give readings of his works, where he built up a large female fan base. He also showed up in various bars, where he always picked up women. What's really impressive is the incredible number of women he had made contact with. I believe he did not spend one night alone and very few nights with the same woman. 
Despite his re-entry into society being deemed a success by the outside world, Unterbaker's dark instincts remained. A lot of people will come out of prison, they don't even have a job, and they'll have to struggle probably for the rest of their lives. But he came out, and he had money, he had a job, he already had a career pretty much set up, so he had all the opportunity. But the problem with killers is that they can't curb the urge. He is a man who's positively bursting with self-importance and vanity. But he is also the same man who was cruel, manipulative, and violent towards women from the age of 16 onwards. Nothing has changed. Only this time, he chooses his targets carefully. In September 1990, just four months after his release from prison, Unterweger killed again. He traveled abroad to find his victim, this time to the country formerly known as Czechoslovakia. His second victim was a 29-year-old shop assistant in Prague, Blanka Bakova. Her body was found on the banks of the Vitava River, lying on her back with her legs spread open and covered with twigs and leaves. She had been strangled with a pair of stockings. The last time she was seen alive was at a bar talking to a well-dressed man around 40 years old. This marked the beginning of Unterweger's undetected killing spree. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel explains what Unterweger was likely feeling during this time. I can only imagine that it must have emboldened him incredibly. I mean, he must have felt literally godlike. I can do whatever I want. I can dress them and undress them. This is a man who has contempt for women. That's the only possible word for it, utter contempt. And what's more, he intends to indulge himself as long as he can get away with it. And my goodness me, does he get away with it? A month after the murder in Prague, in October 1990, Unterweger continued his killing spree, this time murdering three women. The body of Brunhilde Mosser was found naked in a forest near Graz in Austria nearly three months after she disappeared. In December 1990, Heide Hammerer was killed in a forest near Lustenau, close to the German border. Both women had been beaten and strangled with their own tights. March 1991, Elfrida Schrempf disappeared near Graz. Her body was found seven months later. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton and criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley explain how the decomposition of the bodies was affected based on where Unterweger left them. We're looking at somebody who strangled his victims, but then disposed of the bodies in the open air in forests, and it was often a long time, weeks or months, before they were discovered. Obviously, the decomposition process, the fact that animals have access to those bodies, will damage them. It will limit what the pathologist can say. But quite often, the body is much better preserved than necessarily you would think at first glance. And quite often, at least some information can be gleaned. If there was, say, bruising in the tissues of the neck from a strangulation, it would still be relatively identifiable. In some cases, we can never say what happened. In others, the evidence can still remain quite strong for prolonged periods. When we look at the murders he commits after he's left prison, they are much more meticulously planned. 
the first murder was very much an opportunity which he took advantage of and that the circumstances around that left an awful lot of evidence behind. There was a witness, so of course he was going to be convicted for that. So when he comes out, he's sure he's not going to make those same mistakes again and he's very careful, he plans, he's incredibly organised. Little is known about where exactly the victims died and what happened to them before they died. Unterweger picked them up in his car and presumably drove them to an isolated area in a forest. Police had no leads to follow until Unterweger attacked again, but this time, his murderous plan failed. Psychiatrist Dr. Reinhard Haller explains how we do know some of what was done to the victims. We do know a few things because one of his victims survived. And from this evidence, it is quite clear that sexual acts were involved too. But in my opinion, these were not of prime importance. Of prime importance was the sadism, that he wanted to torture the women, that he wanted to exercise power under all circumstances. All of Unterweger's victims shared a similar fate at the moment of their death. If you look at the method that he used for killing his victims, he, he strangled them. And that is the ultimate control method in terms of a way of killing somebody. You are face to face with them. You are seeing the life drain out of them. You can choose to stop. You can choose to carry on. Unterweger's victims were found naked or half naked, lying face down with their legs spread apart and partly covered with twigs and leaves. By now, this was an all too familiar MO. We always see this practice with serial killers. They perform almost ritualized killings. And at the end, they also have a funeral. In his case, it consisted of covering half of the corpse, as was discovered with some of the skeletons. But no one suspected Unterweger of the killings. He was free to continue. He's learned that women are there to be used and abused. That's something that he's learned from an early age. He knows that that's wrong, but he chooses to do it anyway because he enjoys doing it. He likes to dominate others. He likes to have that feeling of power over other people. And because he has no compassion, he has no empathy for the suffering of others, he's an incredibly dangerous man. In March 1991, Unterweger was living the high life in Vienna's coffee culture society. He was a charming, wealthy, and influential poet, but he was also leading a double life. Since leaving prison, he had killed at least four women, and no one suspected a thing. Up until this point, he had traveled to commit the murders, but now he turned his attention closer to home and killed three prostitutes in Vienna. It's an act of the most incredible arrogance. Add vanity to arrogance, and you have a vision of Unterweger's view of himself. I mean, we are talking about a man now who is on a spree, full-out spree. He chooses wisely. He's clearly trawling red light districts. It's hard to miss Unterweger because he's driving a white Ford Mustang, but no one puts two and two together. He's always had a sense of entitlement. He's always felt like he deserves better than other people. But at the same time, he's also got those lessons that he's learned from his early years, that women are there to be used and abused and discarded. So women are the vehicle through which he achieves the, the control that he craves. 
A reporter who claimed to work for the Austrian public broadcaster ORF was investigating the unusual disappearances of sex workers in Vienna for a radio program. His name? Jack Unterweger. In Austria, there are 0.5 to 0.7 killings of prostitutes per year. And now, suddenly, there were seven or eight cases within a year. This was conspicuous. And then the top crime detective got a visit from a reporter named Jack Unterweger, who was equipped with a microphone, and asked him, there are so many prostitutes being killed in Austria, the population is worried. That's a scandal. Why have the police not been more successful? And during one of these live interviews, this official told him, yes, we're checking up on all sexual murderers, including you. And he's loving every minute of this because he knows that he's the one behind the murders that he's talking about. And psychopaths enjoy playing with people. They enjoy kind of pressing their buttons and having a bit of fun and knowing that they're the ones who've got this knowledge that other people don't. So he's essentially, he's having a good time. This is amusing for him. He's getting a lot of gratification out of it. Unterweger's radio program was a bold attempt to cover up his crimes. It also gave him a reason to visit the red light district, explaining why his white Ford Mustang with the license plate WJack1 was spotted and why he was seen talking to prostitutes. It is the act of the most extraordinary vanity and arrogance rolled into one. Not only am I killing the prostitutes, now I'm reporting on the fact that I've terrified the prostitutes in Vienna. It is, I mean, it is truly astonishing. Absolutely, and I use the word rarely. That is astonishing. Author and former criminal psychologist Chris Carter thinks it was all a game to Unterweger. He might have done it just to tease the police. Some serial killers, they do. The longer you go without having people after you, people knocking on your door, the more caught you get. He's presenting himself as the champion of these women's rights, as, as their defender, as, as somebody who really does genuinely care about them. So, so this is really, really chilling stuff. Police in Vienna did have Unterweger on their list of possible suspects, but they had no hard evidence. Unterweger often had an alibi for the days on which the crimes happened. He had either been to a reading, given a radio interview, or been with a girlfriend. Now. Not everyone is completely convinced by Unterweger. Certainly one police officer is beginning to see similarities with the crime that he was eventually convicted for, the killing of the 18-year-old with a steel rod. In fact, that police officer also suspected he may have killed once before. But those odd suspicions do not affect his celebrity in Vienna. Indeed, he's so celebrated and so brazen he gets commissioned to go to Los Angeles to write a piece about prostitution. In June 1991, Unterweger traveled to the U.S. He stayed in the former Cecil Hotel in downtown L.A. It had a reputation for violence and suicide at the time. Unterweger was not the first serial killer to have stayed there. It was already famous as the hangout of the night stalker Richard Ramirez. Within a few weeks of landing, he had killed three women in Los Angeles all of them prostitutes. And I think there was a sense in which he was getting a bit bored. 
And often you see this with psychopaths. They have that, that proneness to boredom, that need for stimulation. So they will often start to vary their offending behavior to mix things up a bit and to keep it interesting. So I think potentially that was what lay behind the decision to, to continue killing people outside of that country. All three murders were meticulously planned in advance. Unterweger's first LA victim was Shannon Exley, a prostitute allegedly popular with truckers. Nine days later, he killed again, Irene Rodriguez, originally from Texas. And five days after that, he killed Sherry Ann Long, who, according to the LA Times, also went by the name Peggy Jean Booth. She was later found in the hills of Malibu. All three women were strangled with a bra using the same very distinct knot, a signature. Some people use a certain method, for example, with strangulation, that would be the MO, the modus operandi. But if they use the strangulation with a cord, then the cord would be the signature. In his case, I don't think he used the bra of the girls a lot of the time, but he did a specific knot. I don't think he did the knot because um, Untervega wanted people to know it was him. He did the knot because he knew the knot worked. And it's the same thing that it happens with so many serial killers. They use a method or a signature because they know it works. Unterweger left LA and returned home to Vienna before detectives could link him to the murders. But while he was away, the police in Vienna began working closely with their counterparts in Graz. They were looking into the different sites of the murders, murders that all began right after Unterweger was released from prison. They realized that the killings were, in fact, linked a pattern began to emerge, with Unterweger being in the same area of Austria where the murders were committed. The police now suspected they were dealing with a serial killer. On February 13, 1992, one year and nine months after he was released from prison, an arrest warrant was issued by the Graz judiciary for Unterweger. But he had fled with his girlfriend, this time to Miami. His little escapade to Florida, though, didn't last long. He's finally tracked down to Florida in the United States because the authorities have begun to put various parts of the puzzle together. And he's arrested and extradited in May 1992 to stand trial in Austria. When he talks to the television camera and he says, I've only had two years of freedom and he appears to be quite upset, we shouldn't be fooled by that. The only person that he feels sorry for is himself. And this is a skilled manipulator. This is somebody who's learned by observing the behavior of other people, what kind of emotions he can display that will elicit some kind of sympathy. During the extradition process, Detective Ernst Geiger from the Vienna Police Department discovered further links to prove Unterweger's guilt. He had searched Unterweger's home and found evidence of his visit to L.A. He contacted the L.A. Police Department and discovered the three similar murders in their district. The evidence found at Unterweger's home placed him in the areas of each crime scene. Geiger expanded his search across Europe, asking if there were any other unresolved murders with the same M.O., Prague police replied with the case of Blanka Bakova. She was the first woman Unterweger killed after his release from jail. The case was building, and Unterweger was charged with the murders of 11 women. In May 1992, Unterweger was extradited from the U.S. to Austria. 
the minor celebrity and poster boy of prison reform, was once again in police custody. It's not often that you get a killer who was that well known to a society. And in his case, it's very interesting to me that he killed, then he went to prison, then he came out early with a brand new profession and with an amazing chance of just carrying on with a brand new life, 10 times better than the life he had before. It just goes to show that the hate he had inside him towards women was so intense that nothing would stop him. Unterweger's trial began on April 20th, 1994, at the courthouse in Graz. Many of his friends from Vienna still believed in Unterweger's innocence, but the prosecution had gathered strong evidence against him, which included, for the first time in an Austrian murder case, DNA. The event attracted an enormous amount of media attention. Journalist Paul Ivan explains what happened in the courtroom that day. You had to register, which was something completely new back then, having to register as a journalist in a public proceeding. This big group of his supporters, his fans, even the female ones, they were already nowhere to be seen or heard. Because during the long pre-trial process, many details had come to light which made it so clear. He was as guilty as sin. Unterweger was defended by two lawyers during what was a complicated and lengthy trial. One of them was Graz-based Dr. Hans-Jürgen Lehofer. Every single victim, every single murder had been examined. The whole thing took three months. With many of the victims, it was no longer possible to establish how the women died, how they were murdered, because sometimes only the skeleton was left as the bodies had been in the forest. The court was shown photographs of the first woman he killed after his release, Blanka Bakova. She was murdered in September 1990 in Prague. The shocking images left a deep impression on everyone in the courtroom. However, Unterweger appeared unfazed. The judge then asked, are there any questions? And Unterweger tells me, quite excitedly, go on, ask him something, ask already. Obviously, he was not affected by the image of this naked girl, the corpse, and this person who was strangled, whose facial expressions are not pretty. He kept telling me to ask, ask, ask. I didn't know what to ask. I wasn't able to ask, but he didn't care. Go on, ask, ask, ask. For two of the murders, the prosecution presented DNA evidence. A hair belonging to Blanka Bakova had been found in Unterweger's car, and red fibers found on another victim's body corresponded to a red scarf found in Unterweger's home. When Unterweger had initially been asked by police about his whereabouts in Prague, unaware of possible DNA evidence, he answered that he had been to the city, but that he hadn't picked up anyone. If he had said, I met a girl there, took her to my car and we did things together, going for a ride, drinking a beer or something, then it would have been possible to explain why a girl's hair was in his car. 
But because he said, I never took a girl in my car in Prague, now the question was, how did Botskova's hair get into the car of Jack Unterweger? This practically sealed the chain of evidence. Another key piece of evidence was Unterweger's modus operandi. He strangled his victims, always using the same kind of knot. Austrian police got in touch with the FBI in the U.S. and asked if there was a way to analyze this specific knot. An American specialist had the answers they needed. Paul Ivan explains the significance of these knots. Boa came to Graz for the trial of Jack Unterweger. She was asked for her opinion on the knots. She said, I tell you the same thing I told the Austrian investigators at the time. If you find the person who tied one of these knots, then you've undoubtedly found the one who tied all these knots. This is a very special knot. Dr. Hans-Jürgen Lehofer explains just how tight these knots were. I can remember how this American woman had the original bra in her hand and showed it to the jury. You could see how tightly the neck was constricted by the knot. And I think that was the turning point in the process. That's when I could really notice it. One had to imagine that the victim's neck was compressed to this diameter. Ivan says this was when the jury knew. That was a moment when it was dead quiet in the overcrowded courtroom, even though there were hundreds of people in there. And Jack Unterweger, who has always had such a particularly straight, present, slightly dominant posture, and who always looked with a certain, I would say, impudence, as if to say, look, I have nothing to hide. Dr. Lee Hofer says the room was then against Unterweger. The horror of the jury when they saw this bra could really be felt physically. And that was also the turning point, when the mood turned against Unterweger. Ivan says you could see Unterweger's disposition change. That was the moment when you could see it in his body language. He slipped back into his seat and grew smaller and smaller. His colour drained. And then he just sat there. I was thinking, now. That was the moment. This is it. The hunt is over. But Unterweger proclaimed his innocence to the very end. The Austrian jury consisted of eight members. If the verdict is at least four against four, the accused goes free. Throughout the trial, Unterweger regularly talked to Dr. Haller in his prison cell. He would discuss how he thought the jury was reacting on each day. He closely monitored the eight jurors during the trial. He always knew who were skeptical, who were against him, who were for him. And he told me every day after the trial, today four were for me and four against me. Today three were skeptical, and so on. People like Hunterweger are incredibly intelligent and they will pick up on other people's emotions, other people's feelings, even though they don't have that complexity of emotion themselves. They learn through observing other people the kind of behaviours that they need to display, the sorts of things that they need to say to get what they want. 
absolutely certain he was confident in his own mind that he could convince at least four of them that he was innocent. Unterweger is so confident that he decides that he will give the final speech in his defense. Unterweger then delivered, in my opinion, a brilliant concluding speech in his defense. And the jury vote was never eight to zero for guilty. Rather, it was always only five to three or six to two. So there were always a few jurors who were still convinced of Unterweger's innocence. But Unterweger's impassioned speech did not sway the jury on all charges. On June 28, 1994, at approximately 9 p.m., the verdict was read out. He was found guilty of nine of the 11 murder charges against him and sentenced to life in prison. He placed an appeal against the verdict. Unterweger then returned to his cell where, six hours later, he hanged himself with the string from his pants and his shoelaces. It was confirmed that the knot he used to tie the noose was the very same he had used to strangle his victims. Well, Unterweger was a cold and calculating and ruthless psychopath who enjoyed harming other people. And I think that the real shame with this case is that the Austrian criminal justice system completely missed its opportunity to put the brakes on his offending because they became too dazzled with the individual that he was presenting as, and far too many people were conned by him. He's one of those people who really does send a shiver down my spine because he would appear to be so charming. And I'm not surprised that the prostitutes got into the car with him, or some may even have recognised him. But he knew they were never going to live to tell the tale, so he saw no worry in that. The ultimate killing machine. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdekis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregge. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thanks. This is the last episode of Season 3 of What Makes a Killer. Stay tuned for when we'll be back with Season 4.